house prices have skyrocketed up, so it's harder to get in in the first place. The only opportunity to get a place is if your parents had property beforehand. It's just out of reach. Welcome to Real Talk, realestate.com.au's property news podcast. It's real questions, real experts, and real insights on the housing issues that matter with your host, Alice Piper. Hello, and thanks for joining me. Today on Real Talk, we're covering the big issue that is always front and centre, housing affordability. The escalating cost of housing has become a pressing issue in Australia, and it is raising real concerns about the accessibility of homes for a significant portion of people. We chatted to some Aussies about how they feel about housing affordability. Extremely unaffordable. I think a lot of millennials will struggle to ever get a home themselves. Cost of living is a lot more than it should be. It's not great for a young person trying to break in. Seems like a distant thing for me to purchase a house. Older generations buy more than one house. It's decreased the amount of homes that are available. To afford a deposit, you'd have to inherit money. My partner and I bought into Long far, far cheaper. We were able to get a far bigger house than we would have been able to afford here. I would probably hold off purchasing until I could live somewhere that I find desirable. To shed some light on the why and the what next is our senior economist, Angus Moore, who is one of the authors of the PropTrack Affordability Report 2024. PropTrack is realestate.com.au's property data arm, delivering best-in-class data and analysis on the housing market. And Dean Mackey, who is seeing the affordability crisis play out on the ground in his role as the CEO of Die Jones Agency in Sydney and wider regions. Thank you both for joining me. It's an amazing but also a terrifying report, Angus. It really does break down the issue that we're facing. The big headline I took away from this report is that housing affordability is at its worst in three decades. What does this actually mean? That's kind of the headline finding from the report. And in fact, it's probably even worse than that. The reason that we say three decades is the index that we base this report around only goes back to 1995. On our records, what the PropTrack Housing Affordability Index shows is that households right across the income distribution have never been able to afford to buy so few homes. We've got a new approach for measuring affordability that might be a bit different from the way that you've seen it done in the past. The kind of two ways that it differs is one, it's it's a bit more intuitive. It measures affordability as the share of homes that you can afford to buy, as opposed to what, say, a typical household would cost you to buy. And it's also more comprehensive. So it looks at everyone right across the income distribution and what they could afford to buy, not just looking at, say, an average income household. So that's kind of the difference in approach that we're taking here. A typical income household, so right in the middle of the income distribution, $105,000 a year, could only afford to buy 13% of homes that were sold in the past year. Dean, you've got loads of experience in the industry. Does this surprise you that affordability is at its worst in three decades? No, not at all, actually. I have been surprised, though, at how affordability and prices have accelerated, especially since COVID. Like, if you'd asked me uh, pre-COVID, uh, as we're going into COVID, what I thought was going to happen with prices, and I thought that there'd be a bit of blood in the water, but it was anything but that. You know, we saw a surge in pricing during COVID, and I think there was, you know, there's a number of transactions dropped off, so the availability of property dropped off. At about the same time as we saw a whole bunch of expats wanting to come home for safety, we saw a lot of money coming out of crypto, tech startups, all sorts of things. And it just seemed to stimulate activity. But it also, I think a lot of people were spending time at home and thought to themselves, like, what, what am I doing here? And it just it stimulated demand for different reasons in different areas, which, which we hadn't seen. So when you sort of take that backdrop and then look at the cost-based sort of upward pressure that's happened in just our general living expenses, been a lot of short-term supply issues, interest rates have gone up, a lot of things that have actually driven price. 
normally when you see an interest rate increase, you, you normally see an impact on price, but it's almost been the opposite. And I think there's been a lot of wealth sitting, a lot of people saving money, sitting behind the scenes with, with dollars in their pocket. And we're seeing population growth at the same time. Everything's sort of going up in price, but equally, even development, I'm seeing the new pro- a lot of new stuff is actually luxury. There's not a lot of development going on in the, in the right parts of the market targeting where affordability is. It seems to be targeting people who already have money who are looking to upsize, or in particular, a lot of people who are wanting to downsize. So, so developers are attracted by the margins that they can make, the extra margins they can make by targeting that sort of buyer, because a lot of those buyers we're seeing don't need a mortgage. So they're not too concerned about affordability. Do you think that there are any other factors contributing to the price rise as well as what you just spoke about, mortgage rate increases, stock shortages? Clearly, stock shortage is a really big thing, right? But affordability is impacted by so many things, right? Look, if you look at someone who's renting a property, and I look at, say, people who work in my business earning, you know, the typical wage that's called 80 to 100 grand a year. And then I look at sort of what they're paying in rent. I look at what it's costing them to fill their car up. I'm, I look at all the expenses that they have. And when you get right down to it, there's not a lot of money left at the end of the day. And consequently, they can't really save what's required for a deposit. So affordability gets further and further away. With the Australian dollar the way it is, the exchange rate is attractive for people to bring money back into the country. So people who want to relocate back home, expats, or alternatively, we're seeing a lot of Indian or Chinese buyers wanting to come into Australia, so non-residents, or people who want to immigrate. All these factors together just keep driving the price up. Can you just give me the lowdown on what is classified as the typical income? The way that we call typical is is what, if I'm going to use my statistics words, are what we call the median, which is the middle of the distribution. So someone at the median earns more than half of households and less than the other half. In Australia, that's $105,000 a year is typical or median income. It is worth noting this is for all households. So it's going to include retirees. It's going to include young households who you know, are obviously low income. Rule of thumb, $105,000 a year is typical. So let's just say I earned $105,000. Does that mean that I can afford only 13% of the properties available? At the moment, yes, that's what the PropTrack Housing Affordability Index shows. Now that, based on a few assumptions, in particular, that assumes you already have a 20% deposit, which, as Dean said, is clearly a big burden. But what it's saying is, if you earn $105,000 a year, you had your deposit at current mortgage rates, of the homes that were sold in the past year, only 13% of them would a bank have been willing to lend you enough money to buy. Yeah, but that's median. So median is the 50 percentile. So does that mean 50% of the Australian population can only afford 13% of the houses available? Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's, it's a stark figure. There is a reason that the headline is it's, it's worst in three decades and probably longer. You know, that's as long as we have data. But with interest rates where they are and prices where they are, it is very, very hard for people to afford mortgage repayments on most of the homes that have been sold. This report also talks about housing accessibility, which is different to housing affordability. Angus, can you tell us the difference between the two? This is something that we like to kind of draw a distinction between because affordability is a complex concept. And so when we talk about accessibility, what we mean is saving a deposit. When we're talking about affordability for the vast majority of first-time buyers, you're going to be buying with a mortgage. And so there's two dimensions that you need to satisfy. You need enough income to be able to pay your mortgage repayments. So that's affordability, and that's what we've kind of been talking about thus far. But you also need a deposit. Typically 20%, though most first-time buyers don't have 20%. 20% is kind of a, a common benchmark. That's not about your income. That's about your wealth. 
it's a different question. That said, you can kind of think about wealth as a, a flow of income. You save your income over time to build your wealth. And so it's, you know, one way you can think about how hard is it to save a deposit is, well, how long would you need to save for if you saved, say, 20% of your income? No mean feat, right? 20% quite a bit of your income to be saving, but it's one way to think about it. When we talk about affordability, it's very driven by interest rates. And so affordability today is very tough. It was also very tough in 2008 because interest rates were high then. It was also very tough in 1990 when interest rates were very high then as well. What isn't driven by interest rates and what today is much harder than it has been in past decades is that accessibility, that difficulty of saving a deposit. And you know, one way to put some numbers around that, kind of communicate the scale of the difficulty. Today, if you earned average income, you were to save 20% of your income would take you five and a half years to save a deposit for a median price home. In 1990, it was less than three years, so nearly half. Is that five and a half years if housing prices don't change? That's if housing prices and your income, you know, obviously incomes grow over time too. Like there's a lot of moving parts here. It's a very simple way to think about the problem, but I think it's a way to kind of put some magnitudes around how hard is it to save a deposit. Yeah, it's almost like how long is a piece of string? What is the big finding with this accessibility? Because accessibility, it's about getting into the market. So does this impact first home buyers the most? It does. A lot of older buyers who've had a lot longer to build their wealth, this isn't the constraint for them. It's either affordability or you know, potentially they're not buying with a mortgage at all. And so both of these questions are sort of moot for those buyers. So this is very much a first home buyer problem, accessibility. We often argue about whether affordability is harder today than it was in 1990. And it's an ongoing debate. Everyone points to when interest rates were 15%, et cetera, et cetera. And look, it remains true that mortgage repayments relative to income were a little higher. And I would stress a little, but they were a little higher in 1989 than they are today. Not much, but a little bit. But I think we're splitting hairs there because ultimately, you know, the time to save a deposit today is about twice as long. And in a sense, it doesn't matter because we can look at the actual outcomes. If we look at the number of first-home buyers, if we look at home ownership rates today versus three decades ago, they're just much lower right across the age distribution. That increasing difficulty of saving a deposit, in a sense, is kind of what shows up in the data. And if we look at home ownership rates for younger households, they have been falling for decades. So to put some numbers around that, in New South Wales, Today, about 45% of households aged 30 to 34, which you might think of kind of prime first home buyers, only 45% of them own their home today. In 1981, it was 66%, so 20 percentage points higher, substantially higher. Other states tell pretty similar stories. To put some numbers on it very quickly, you know, in Victoria today, 30 to 34 year olds, 52% own their home. In 1981, it was 72%. So again, 20 percentage points more. So the deterioration in affordability and the difficulty of saving a deposit are really showing up for younger households. And we are seeing declines in home ownership as a result. We did speak to one guy who has moved further afield in order to be able to afford his first home. Let's listen to what he had to say. Not in Melbourne, it's not great, but uh, I live in Geelong. It's a lot better there. It's not great for a young person trying to break in. Um, I don't think that interest rates at the moment um, are really making it too feasible uh, for young people who are trying to buy and trying to save for a deposit is very, very challenging. Angus, how long ago could 50% of the lower income population afford 50% of the properties? I'm going to preface by saying it's not necessarily the right benchmark to think about for affordability. You know, it's obviously an attractive way and a sensible way to kind of think about it. But people do tend to buy homes at kind of high points in their life cycle income. So you would expect people that are buying to be 
on average, higher income than the population overall. And, you know, in particular, I'm thinking about retirees here. That median of 105,000 includes retirees. Most of them aren't looking to buy homes. So they're sort of, in a sense, we don't need to necessarily worry about them as much. That said, it's still a really sensible place to start for thinking about what you might think of as a sort of nice benchmark for affordability. If you're at the median, can you afford half of homes? If you're a high income at the 80th percentile, can you afford 80% of homes? The answer is, in terms of when that last happened, actually pretty recently. We weren't quite there, but it was pretty recently, and that was during the pandemic. And the reason for that is, you know, homes were very expensive, certainly in places like Sydney and Melbourne. Because of how low interest rates were, a lot of people could afford a lot of the homes that were sold. So, you know, a median income household in 2020 and 2021 could afford 40% of homes. So not 50, but pretty close. If we're going back further, so that, that's kind of recent history, and, and that's a big part of why we saw such you know, hot housing market activity during the pandemic was, was really low interest rates. If we're going back a bit further, the best time we've ever seen for affordability was the late 1990s, so kind of 97, 8, 9. A median income household at that time could afford about half homes that were sold, so kind of that, that sort of benchmark. Maybe to throw some fuel on the fire, boomers would have been in about their mid-30s at that time or up to their very early 50s if they were kind of on the early side. So depending on when they were born, a lot of them would have been looking to upgrade at this time. You know, again, obviously everyone's different. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. That was kind of the best time we've seen for housing affordability in the past three decades. Obviously, housing affordability is multifactorial. But let's take it back to today. I want to look at the other end of the spectrum now to high income earning households. That's households are earning over $200,000 a year. It is 20% of the population. What can they afford? We're talking about the top 20% here. So it's not that many uh, households overall. When you look at first home buyers, and in particular, when you look at successful first home buyers, they are disproportionately in these higher income brackets because you need to be high income to be able to afford to buy a lot of these homes. At the moment, a high income household at the 80th percentile can afford just over half of homes that were sold in the past year. Better than what we're seeing at the median, obviously, they are higher income, but still nowhere near commensurate with their income. So Dean, the Sydney median house price pretty much well exceeds a million dollars. Who is buying these homes? There's different buyers in different markets. I'd say to you, overall, we're seeing demand really broad-based at all levels, and we're seeing it come from everywhere, from locals, from expats, from foreigners. At the lower end, you've got some incentives in place for first home buyers, and we are seeing quite a bit of first home buyer activity at the moment, despite affordability. It's quite surprising. What you're also seeing at the moment is with stamp duty being such a high cost, it's a real issue as prices are going up, stamp duty just goes with it. It's indexed according to price. It doesn't really discriminate. But what does it mean? It means you've got more people staying longer in properties. Instead of transacting as much, they take longer to transact. I've got some people that will say, I can actually do a full extension and renovation of my property for the price of stamp duty alone to go to my next property. When you say who's buying these properties, it's really different in each price category and each property type. I mean, I mean, if you just take, for example, Central Coast, which is just out of Sydney, we've seen a lot of people moving out of the northern beaches. They've been priced out. Prices have got too hot. People during pandemic decided they wanted to be more lifestyle and coastal. So we saw a lot of people moving out of the eastern suburbs in the inner west and places like that moving to the northern beaches. People in the northern beaches then couldn't afford to repurchase or rent, for example. The renters in particular got stung. And then they go, well, where else can I get a similar lifestyle? Well, I'll shift to the Central Coast. So the Central Coast now has seen a big surge in pricing. So there's this multiplier effect that happens all through the marketplace. Angus, how did the other states stack up to that? New South Wales is the least affordable state in Australia, and it basically always has been. If we're looking at the other states, 
Tassie's actually the second least affordable state now, and that's a really big change. As recently as 2017, Tasmania was Australia's most affordable state, but since then prices have been on an absolute tear. They've basically doubled since 2015. And Tassie's the lowest income state in Australia. So that makes buying a home in Tassie if you're a local very, very tough. So it's, it's not actually all that far behind New South Wales now in terms of its affordability. Victoria is the number three state, you know, which again sort of makes sense, relatively consistently sits behind New South Wales. It's a bit more affordable, but still, you know, as one of the largest states, it is not an especially affordable market. The other end of the spectrum is WA. So WA is actually our most affordable state at the moment. On the metrics, it actually doesn't look too bad relative to the other states. You know, obviously affordability is worse than there in the past two years or so as interest rates have risen really quickly and prices have, have started to pick up in WA as well. But relative to other states, it, it looks pretty good. 15 years ago, WA was the least affordable state in Australia. It's the only time any state other than New South Wales has been the least affordable. And that was in the height of the mining boom in 2007, 8, 9, when WA you know, was seeing huge inflows of people and in particular money that was driving up prices there. It became a very unaffordable market. But since then, prices have actually grown pretty softly compared to what it was in 2010. It hasn't seen enormous price growth. And so today it's actually a relatively affordable market compared to other parts of the country. Now, I imagine in New South Wales and Victoria, affordability is being driven by capital cities. Dean, are you seeing a big difference between metro and outer suburbs? Yeah, for sure. Metro is just really under the pump. You know, like the lower North Shores are very, very popular with families. Head to the eastern suburbs of Sydney and it's really competitive sort of between sort of 8 and 15 million, would you believe? You know, you could buy a terrace in Paddington not long ago for a couple of mil. And you still can on average, but anyone who's stayed in those properties and renovated them, they're, they're exiting them for, for seven, eight, nine million. It puts a lot of pressure on people then be needing to move further out. So that then radiates out into other suburbs and then it puts pressure on the inner west and so on. And then what's happened is, is that, you know, when you've got people in Metro thinking, this is tough. I don't feel as though I can actually have the lifestyle I'm looking for. There's a lot of pressure on to, in terms of price and therefore they are looking elsewhere. And so we've seen some really interesting moves out of Metro Sydney and particularly within about 90 minutes of the city. And I think you probably find that all around the country that people think I'll move for a different lifestyle provided the area's got decent schools for the kids. So somewhere in, as you talk about New South Wales, a lot of people have gone Southern Highlands you know, and down to the south coast, as an example, all within that sort of 90-minute range. We're seeing a lot of that. And we're also seeing people move and, and buy a decent property, say, in the Southern Highlands, but still keep a Sydney pad because they can, they know they're going to commute. So they want a smaller apartment and they'll still buy a bigger property and, that, and they may have traded out of something a bit larger and moved down there. So if someone has already got a home or people who just think, geez, it's all too hard, I'm going to go and, go and move in that area. And that trend has, has happened all around Sydney, not just the Southern Highlands. And in effect, it, that then starts to put issues and pressure on those regional markets as well. So you have less rental properties available in those markets because people might move down there and rent first before they buy something. And as people move down there, they need more skilled workers, so they, they need more rental properties. And, and it just has this ripple effect, but then you've got inadequate supply in those markets. They're just not ready for that, that migration of population out of Sydney. So that creates its own microcosm in those areas. What's been adding to it, uh, we've noticed, is that when investors in Sydney, for example, they actually are finding that their returns are a bit lower than they have been in the past. And so there's a lot of investors selling, and then they're looking for more of a, a property, a lifestyle property in those areas of high demand and buying a short-term rental. So something that they, they can rent and they can potentially go to themselves, they can see that those areas are in growth and they can actually get a decent rental return on them because they can short-term let them on Airbnb, et cetera. What's happening in metros definitely having a significant impact upon those regional areas. We previously spoke to a mortgage choice broker uh, and he was saying that 
Often the rent versus mortgage repayments are actually sometimes quite comparable, but it is that deposit barrier. Nadine, Sydney's rents are actually, they're the most expensive in the country or one of the most expensive in the country. Do you think that the deposit is the biggest barrier for first-time buyers to get into the market? Well, I think it's that as well as stamp duty. And while there are government uh, schemes in place, they, they have sort of um, you know thresholds of, of where those cut in and out, and they're also quite limited. So, look, it's definitely you know like I said earlier, I've got I look at people on on that average wage, and I and you do the math and you work out if they're paying you know the amount of rent that they're asked to pay, and then all of their additional living costs, you know there are, there's very little left at the end of the day. So that's definitely the first issue. But you have to save for that as well as save for your stamp duty costs, right? So those two factors combined really make it a strong barrier to entry. And I actually think it's also what's driving a lot of people's decisions in terms of to not sell and not buy because those transaction costs are actually so high. So are you seeing any interesting approaches from first-home buyers just to get their foot in the door? Yeah, I'm seeing interesting approaches from buyers all over the place because what we're talking about here is essentially is is a fall in real wages for people effectively. Their buying power is actually less and the cost of living pressure, it's biting these people, right? And I think it will actually bite the market at some point. I've been wondering when in fact will this all end? You know, you've got this upward pressure on affordability generally in your life with a lot less money. And, and then you're going, well, these prices just keep going up. And I've got to tell you, I've been pinching myself as an agent. I've been surprised consistently for the last three or four years at what I've been seeing. So it's no wonder that you've got buyers that are going, you know what, I need to get ahead of this. So I'm finding that first home buyers in particular, well, we all know these days it's, it's the bank of mum and dad that helps. We're seeing buyers agents becoming a really strong thing too now where People are getting very well researched and really focused on what they want, and they're finding it incredibly hard to go and negotiate and find the right solution. So they're employing professionals for them these days as opposed to just going on about themselves. And then you've got buyers that are are actually trying to circumnavigate the whole thing. You know, they're actually then trying to approach properties themselves, putting things in letterboxes and all sorts of little sort of things that, that we, we you wouldn't normally see, but people are actively finding it hard. The competition is difficult for these guys. So if, if they can find a way potentially to buy a property off market or direct, they're looking at ways in which they could be creative so that they're not put into, into a process of competition. It's the competition that makes it very hard for the first home buyers. Angus, do you have any ideas on how Australia's housing market could actually get back on track so that more people could afford it? I'll start with the bad news, which is, look, in the near term, we're probably not going to see a massive improvement in affordability. Interest rates are high, and the good news is we're probably not going to see big increases from here. We're probably not going to see big decreases either in the near term. And while we are seeing increases in wages, and that's going to help offset mortgage costs, it's slow. We're going to see pretty challenging affordability. Fundamentally, the only solution to this, to high housing prices, to difficulties affording homes, is building more homes where people want to live. That fundamentally has to be the way that we solve this. You know, interest rates make a big difference to affordability, but they're a short-term fix, clearly. You know, they made a housing very affordable during 2020 and 2021. Interest rates had to go up as inflation went up. Housing's now very unaffordable. So not a long-term fix there. I think there's some pleasing developments on that front. You know, we've seen the commitments from the government to build 1.2 million homes and in a nice change, there are actually some payments around that to create some incentives to build them for the states. Whether that happens, we'll see. It's a step in the right direction, but you know, I think given how challenging affordability is, there's, there's still a lot to do. So my final question is for you, Dean. Do you have any encouragement for people looking to get into the market now considering how tough it is? 
I think there's a, a range of things. First and foremost, do your research, know what you're looking for, understand what's going on, but also be flexible. You might start out in a particular suburb with a particular lifestyle, but within 10 or 15 minutes of that, you might be able to buy something 10 or 20% cheaper that still offers a similar lifestyle. So get clear on the lifestyle that you're after, not so much fixated on a suburb. So you might find that this is the lifestyle and there might be six or seven or eight, maybe 10 suburbs that provide that lifestyle, but you're sticking to one. So if you're flexible around, around suburb, that can help. The other thing I'd say is you've got to start somewhere. It doesn't always have to be exactly where it is that you you want to end up. Where you start's not where you have to finish. What's expensive today is likely to be cheap tomorrow, you know, in the passage of time. So take a longer term view with it. I mean, don't wait forever. Do your research, be flexible, start somewhere. Thanks both so much for joining me. It's been a really informative episode, especially the difference between both accessibility and affordability. So I hope that people have learned a lot today and I've really enjoyed having both of you on. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Thanks for joining me. This has been Real Talk. For your weekly fix, please follow wherever you listen to your podcasts and tune in next time for more real questions, news and insights on the topics that matter most from realestate.com.au, Australia's number one address in property. All information provided is general advice and opinion based on current market conditions. These opinions should not be treated as investment advice. Always obtain advice based on your individual circumstances. Real Talk acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, air and community. We pay our respects to elders past and present.